Do you know, friends? Without the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, what he is saying would be absolutely pointless. Without the eyewitness testimony of the women, Peter and John and Thomas, the rest of the disciples, even 500 at one time and sometime later, the Apostle Paul, without that, this scripture that we have up here this morning would be meaningless to us and it would have been pointless to even write it. Because you see, friends, we can look at the scripture and understand it. I would put it this way. We can break down the Scripture. What the Scripture says is not hard for us to grasp. This is the main point. The word main point, interesting word. The word is kephalion, from which we get cephalus, or head. Those who have medical backgrounds here, you know that there are such things as hydrocephaly, anencephaly, microcephaly. They all reference some condition, some medical condition with the head. The word literally is cephalus or the head. But what it means in this particular context is that this argument, this discussion that he's been laying forth now comes to the head. It comes to this one point. The word also is used then because of that to carry with it the idea of a summary. So here's the main point, he says. I want you to get this main point. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand. Well, that concept of being seated, we understand that. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we gain from this concept of Christ being seated that he has completed his work. He's done. He sat down. We read way back in September, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the Father. It's a completed work that's being referenced there. And we can understand that. That's not all that Tricky. And then we see that he's seated at the right hand of the throne. We can understand that. It's a statement of authority. God is on his throne. And the high priest, having completed his work, sits at his right hand. How do we know that that's a place of authority? Again, earlier in, the, in Hebrews... The writer quoted the psalm which says, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Sit right here. And in time, all the authority that is rightfully yours will be used to vanquish all your enemies. And you will reign supreme. And they will all be in subjection to you. So we get the idea of him resting from the work that he did. We get the idea that he's seated at the right hand of the throne, that he has authority. And if we put these two things together, his completed work and his authority gives us the understanding of his being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, chapter 7, we spent, we, we pushed really hard to get through that, and, and I feel a little bit embarrassed about that, but I wanted to get to where we're at today. So we understand. When he is the priest after the order of Melchizedek, 
that he is both a king and a priest together. See, we tend to identify his kingship with him, I think, more. I think that's our natural tendency. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but you know, the reason I say it is I don't find that I've ever spoken often, and I don't know anybody else who's spoken often of Christ as our high priest. It just doesn't seem to be a part of our discussions. But we do identify his kingship time and time again. Consider this. The birth narratives that we just looked at a few months ago at Christmas. When the Magi came, they asked what? Where is he that was born king of the Jews? Didn't they? Because we saw a star in the east. And Herod, because he was threatened by them coming that way, he killed all the babies, two years old and younger, in order to wipe out this one born king of the Jews. At his triumphal entry, what did they cry? Hosanna, which means save now. What were they asking for? They were asking that he would throw off the, ro- the reign of Rome in his kingly role as they anticipated with Messiah. At his trial before Pilate, are you the king of the Jews? was set forth before him. That question was put to him. And when he spoke of his kingdom, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And you remember what the religious leaders did in stirring up the crowd? What did they say? On this whole discussion of the kingship, we have no king but Caesar. He's not our king. But the point being, kingship is in the discussion. In Acts chapter 1, his disciples asked him before he ascended, are you now going to set up your kingdom? And we await When his enemies are made his footstool, Revelation 19 tells us that he will return on a white horse as king of kings and lord of lords. See, we have a significant familiarity of Christ as king. But the author to Hebrews is pressing on us his high priestly role as he said now this is the main point of the things we are saying the main point this is what I want you to get as things come to a head get this much we have such a high priest hmm I wonder if you would consider it appropriate that we would say he was tried as a king but he died as a high priest, making an offering for sin on our behalf. And people weren't getting it. So you see, understanding the scripture, we can break it down. This particular scripture is pretty easy to understand as compared to some others that really cause us to scratch our head. We can break down the scripture, but, my friends, the scripture itself breaks down without the resurrection. We have a high priest such as this. That is a present tense verb. Right now, we have a high priest. How can that be without the resurrection? If Jesus hasn't been raised from death, How in the world can he be a high priest to us that we presently have if he's dead like everybody else we know who has died? Romans tells us he was raised again 
for our justification. He was raised again that he might be able to carry out this ministry whereby we can be declared righteous in him. But without the resurrection, we have no indication at all that anything has been accomplished. And in Hebrews 7.25, we read this, He is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That for everyone who comes to God through Jesus Christ and this work, his work as a high priest, for every single one, he is able to offer salvation because he always is making intercession on our behalf. How does that possibly make sense if he's dead in the grave like everyone else? What active, what active agent can he be on our behalf? See, we can break down the scripture, but the scripture breaks down without the resurrection. It says that he is seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. Now speaking about his power, that he will be received ultimately, whether by force or by bended knee willingly, that all will bend their knee before him. But for him to be seated at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens, how can that be without the resurrection? That statement makes no sense. Romans also says to us, considering this relationship of of being seated at the right hand, authority and power, Romans uh, in the first chapter, chapter says, he was declared to be the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. It's his resurrection that validates who he is and affirms his claim that he has a kingdom that's not of this world, affirms the reality of the the scriptures that say he will come as king of kings and lord of lords. See, his present role as high priest and his future role as king of kings are both, both, completely contingent upon the resurrection. 100%. And here's the good news in all of it that we're celebrating today, friends. Here's the good news. And see, he was crucified, died, buried. And he was raised again the third day. Scripture's clear on that. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Scripture's clear on that. And that's what gives validity to everything that the Scripture is saying. But the account we read at the opening of our service, where the women came to the tomb, and you can read other accounts, and you can read further into John, and you can read in the book of Acts. You see, from the grave... To being seated in the heavens, he stopped by here long enough. He stopped by on his way to heaven long enough to make sure that enough people saw him that they would totally validate the resurrection 
and the fact that he'd gone to heaven, that he's no longer in the grave, that that tomb is empty. And those would validate exactly what God has done. Think of it this way. Without him stopping by on his way through, from our perspective, all you got is, a, is another dead man. Nothing else. How would we know? Even if he was seated in the heavens as our high priest, how would we know? Why would we believe that? What would we look to and say, hey, yeah, this, this many years later, right? Centuries later, millennia later, we look and we say, hey, I believe that he really did. He'd have been lost to history, right? He'd have been lost to history as just one more kook put to death by the Romans. We're in the book of Hebrews because God impressed upon me while on sabbatical that magnificent gift that you gave to me last summer. And I just had this impression, we've got to dig into Hebrews and we're going to spend some serious time in it. I cannot tell you how that sabbatical ministered to me. I had planned a trip to come home that would have taken about seven days, eight days to travel home and I made the first stop at, uh, in Columbus, Georgia, and saw Ryan and Brenda Williams. Spent a night with them, had a great time. Made the next stop in Bellbuckle, Tennessee, to see my friends there. And while in Bellbuckle, learned that Lowell was fading fast. And there was no way that I wanted to not see Lowell again. So then I picked up the pace, scratched the rest of the places I would stop, other than I happened to be going through Rockford at the time when it was right around lunch. So I called my sister said, hey, you want to do some Portillo's for lunch? That's a hot dog place that cool people know about. And uh, <laughs> she said, sure. So I stopped there. And it was, you know, those are three places. Now, what's my point? My point is, you might say, you didn't stop at those places. How do we know you stopped on your way back from Florida? You stopped at those places. How would you know? (laughs) You'd go to the eyewitnesses, wouldn't you? And you'd call Ryan and Brenda. Did Gary really come and spend a night? Did you really do these things? And they'd say, yeah. And then you'd call our friends, the Bowens, and you'd say, did he really stop in Belba? Yep, yeah, he did. And this is what we did. And my my sister Judy, did you really get some cool portillos? And she'd say, portillos is awesome. Who cares about my brother? But you would get some eyewitnesses, and you would be able to then confirm, yeah, he really did stop at those places. Do you understand, my dear and precious friends, that the New Testament is written by those who are eyewitnesses of what they're telling us? Peter says very clearly, we didn't devise fables. We were witnesses to what it is we saw, and we're telling you what we saw. Now, there's a point to that, a significant point. Because we saw in Hebrews 6, or in Hebrews chapter 7, we saw that God desires, God desires that we know and understand, we know and understand what it is He's doing. 
God is revealing to us. He's not keeping it a secret. He hasn't gone through all this magnificent work of what he's doing in his son just to say, well, you know what? I'm doing some really cool things. He died. He was their sin bearer. He's in heaven. He's, he's interceding on their behalf. One day he's going to come when I make his enemies his footstools, but I'm not going to tell him about it. I'm not going to give him any way for them to know that it's true. And it was Hebrews 6, verse 17, not Hebrews 7. Hebrews 6, verse 17, where it says, God wants us to know. He's making it as clear as possible what he's doing redemptively so we can all know and understand and therefore embrace what God is doing. He's not keeping his redemptive work a secret And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate validation of his saving work as he calls to and reaches out and summons sinners like you and me, worthy of eternal judgment, but because of what Christ has done as our high priest. And he offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. He now continues to make intercession on our behalf. And he can do it because of the resurrection. We are now going to have our choir come. What a rich blessing that they have prepared for this. And they're going to to share the cantata, My Savior Lives. We trust you will be blessed by this. And choir, please come. Katie, it's yours. We serve a risen Savior. Let's praise Him.
Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fail. This is his victory, but the benefits are ours. Here's the story and history of the Savior we celebrate today.
Yes, Lord, you've risen from the dead. Thank you, Jesus, that you've conquered and that we were raised with you. And right now, Lord, we join our hearts in worshiping you with those across the centuries who have been transformed. You're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now hear these words from a Resurrection Day sermon over 1,600 years ago. Let no one fear death, for the death of our Savior has set us free. He has destroyed it by enduring it. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Christ is risen. And you, O death, are annihilated. Christ is risen. And the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen. And the angels rejoice. Christ is risen. And life is liberated. Christ is risen. And the tomb is emptied of its dead. For Christ, having risen from the dead, is become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Join us in singing this song if you know it. Um, it won't be up there, so.
the Jewish leaders, in the darkness of their thought, believed they could silence him. The Romans, who didn't want any disruptions of those people they had uh, invaded and occupied, thought they could silence him. Yea, the very demons of hell thought that day they could silence him. But our Savior lives. And we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected, and not man. No one could silence him. And so we have celebrated power of his resurrected life this morning. We thank you for being here. We're going to pray and then we're going to close with one last little thing and we ask you to join with us in full force. Father, I ask your blessing upon us as we go that the truth and the reality of Jesus Christ raised from death walked among us to demonstrate indeed that you had raised him to give us incontrovertible testimony that we might believe you, that he is our high priest seated in the heaven, that he forever makes intercession on our behalf. Father, I praise you that you desire for us to know this. And I ask that as we go at this time, we will go in the confidence and the knowledge that you give through your word that Jesus Christ is high priest and king of kings that we might continue to celebrate throughout this day. Amen. Will you please stand and join us as both the praise team and the choir finish our service with us.
You are dismissed. Go with God, and happy Easter, everybody.